listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Hi, everybody. How's it going? Good, good. Well, I'm excited to be up here. Uh, as, I, as, as Ryan said, my name's Ben. Uh, I have been the youth pastor here for two and a half years. Uh, and I'm about to say something to you that might sound crazy, but I am a fan of failure. Not failing, all right? Dave, Dave Delgado's looking back at me over there, and he knows what happened in the baseball or in the softball game last night. Not failing, okay? I'm way too competitive to uh, ever allow any of that to uh, to enjoy failing or or losing. But failure is a different story, and there's a massive difference between the two. Um, Failing is trying to do something and just not being able to do it, right? You, you cannot accomplish anything, and in the end, it leads to, to frustration, quitting, and sometimes depression. But failure marks why it happened in retrospect. I am failing. That was a failure. And while it does make us look into the past, failure allows us to look at failing in a new perspective, Failure showcases a space for growth and a chance to train to be better. Uh, J.R. Tolkien once said, uh, you can only come to the morning through the shadows, which I thought was really cool. I really like Tolkien. You can only come to the morning through the shadows, which actually reminded me of Ryan's sermon almost a year ago where he said, uh, dark nights and a new dawn. And I was like, I think Tolkien might have plagiarized you, Ryan. Uh, either way, either that or maybe there's some wisdom in the idea that failure pinpoints that spot, that, uh, that blind spot that maybe you didn't notice and it shines a spotlight on it. And then it's time to get to work with a new mindset and train how to move beyond that failure. So like I said, while I absolutely hate failing, I love failure. Today, I don't want to shine the spotlight on anybody but myself uh, as I reveal to you one of my abject failures. And it all revolves around this single verse out of John that I I simply have just messed up so many times, time and time again. Uh, And honestly, I've struggled with it for over 10 years now. And while I've gotten to a better understanding of the verse, it would be a lie to tell you that I'm finished learning from it. I'm sure that I'll continue to be transformed and challenged by this simple verse many, many, many more times. Uh, It's going to take a little bit of a story to get there, so I hope that you'll bear with me as we uh, go through this story to get to the verse itself. But uh, I hope that by the end, you'll see where my failure was, and then we can go with uh, what we can learn from it. So at this point uh, in my life, I had been a young life leader for some time, and I knew that I had a heart for kids. Um, For those of you that don't know what Young Life is, Young Life is a Christian organization that that works with high schoolers and uh, really takes takes it upon themselves to introduce Christ to as many high schoolers possible. Um, And you work with kids throughout the school year, and at the end of the school year, you you know, you really invite them to camp, getting to camp. It's a a really big part of what Young Life is, getting kids to camp. Uh, 
So that was happening this year. And this one year I had one of the most extreme group of ruckus causing kids that I knew from coaching football going up to camp. I mean, these kids were out of this world. It was an intense week of things that weren't like get you kicked out of camp bad, but also like not appropriate for 97% of conversation bad. And I mean, they were wild. I was constantly apologizing to everyone for everything they did. Other kids, uh, other leaders, even the staff at the camp. I was apologizing to everyone. They were, they were literally uncontrollable. Now, uh, Young Life Camp has a very uh, standardized way of kind of teaching Christ and allowing new, new people to, um, to really experience Jesus. Um, and while there's a lot more to it and a lot of fun to it, the, the bare bones breakdown of what the speaker talks about at camp uh, kind of breaks down like this. The first few days, they talk about who Jesus is and, and who he is as a person. And then on the, the second to last night, sin is highlighted. And then the final night, it's altar call time. Like that's, that's the breakdown of it. And, um, and at this point in my life, getting kids to that point, getting them to the altar call, man, that was the pinnacle of my walk with Jesus. I was living in mountaintop experiences. Now, as I mentioned, this group was completely wild, uh, but my hopes for them were sky high that they would understand their need for Jesus and, uh, and, and just be there with him. But, you know, ultimately, and I, I guess this is a major spoiler for the end of this story, not a one of them did. Not a single one. And you can call that a failure in, in some way, but we'll dig into it in a bit. But uh, this story, actually, we haven't even gotten to the story yet. How crazy is that? Uh, this story revolves around one kid, and uh, we'll call him C. Uh, he was a, uh, a well-sought-after, uh, recruited volleyball player. He was very much liked by uh, every single kid who was at camp. And out of all of the troubles that this group got into, C was the one who always seemed to talk their way out of it, right? And uh, C just had this way about him, very, very smooth and calm with everybody. I didn't really know C before camp. He was invited by his football friends, who I did know. However, C reminded me of one of my best friends from college. So he and I just really got along. We were, we were instant buddies. Now, just like most summer camps, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things to, to do. There's a lot of fun uh, events planned that, that you can go to, that you can be a part of. Um, it's filled with many great activities, and one of which is usually a ropes course. Now, I love ropes courses. I think they're so much fun, especially because I, I have a background in being a rock climbing guide. I can look at those things and I can see it and I'm like, all right, that's stable, that's stable, that's stable. Those anchors are set correctly. I'm, I'm tethered up to four pieces of wire right here. You know, my harness is on correctly. This thing is secure. You're more likely to get home on time on the five on a Friday night than get injured on one of these things. Like, they are that secure. But C was afraid of heights. Now, um, however, not wanting to be considered one of the outsiders of his group, C was determined to do this ropes course. So he wanted, he asked me to wait behind, and, and we waited for everyone else to get on the ropes course, and then, um, and then we set out together. 
And he and I took our step by minuscule step, just inching our way onto this ropes course. And soon our group's scheduled time on the ropes course was over. And we weren't even over the first bridge. (laughs) Trembling and shaking, we worked our way through that sucker, conquering our fears together and growing in trust. I remember there were times when he was crossing over a bridge just shaking and I had my arm out to him and I was like, just reach out and grab my hand. I got you. I got you right here. And so he did and we grabbed hold and we moved through that thing. Finally, it was time for the last jump. Now, at this point, um, at this point, you know, in the last jump, they, they place a bar out in front of you. Uh, it's like a pull-up bar. And at the end, you're, you're sitting there on the edge, and you're supposed to, like, reach out and jump out and grab onto the bar. And if you miss it, you just slowly go down to the ground. But, uh, you know, you're, you're really supposed to try and get this bar because it's like an achievement. Oh, I got the bar. Uh, and if you miss, you just slowly sink down. At this point, we were two hours past our cutoff time for the course. Most of the people on the course uh, who were working it had left. Everyone had already gone to dinner, eaten dinner, and were on their nightly free time. It was dusk, and C had the final jump to make. And with all the encouragement I could muster, I just... I just said, come on, we got this, we got this, we got this. And finally, he jumped. He didn't even try to grab on the bar uh, and and delicately sank down to the ground. And he did it. He finished the course. It was awesome. And now I'm assuming that you can all see the parallels that I'm seeing and what I saw then. I said, look at what we accomplished together. Our bond is tight. We walked through your fears, see, and now all you need to do is make that one more jump. Make that one more jump and find Jesus. I was so pumped up about that. I was certain. Now, I'd already talked to him about it, and I knew what his stance was. I I knew his stance was an, uh, I'm just not sure I'm going to wait attitude. And so I I wasn't going to have that that night. So I ripped open my Bible to a passage I knew was perfect for me right then. I zipped over to John 4, verse 35, because I knew exactly where it was and exactly how it would help me. And I read, I read this, look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. And I thought to myself, that's right. Harvest time is now. Let's go harvest a soul for Jesus. But like, you know, I, I didn't. C didn't. None of the kids did. I mean, even after I had similar but, but different experiences with each and every kid that I led up at that camp, not a one of them found Jesus. Not there. And I felt like I was failing. But as I look back on it now, I see that failing was completely the wrong way to see it. I wasn't failing to reap souls. It was a failure to understand what Jesus was saying and a failure in how to read the Bible and a failure in how to utilize scripture for Christ's gain rather than my own. And I hope today we can grow from my failure, which is why I love failure so much. First, I want to I tackle that failure to read the Bible by diving into the scripture at the point where this one all started out wrong. John 4, 35, it says this, do you not say four mo- months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. 
Uh, and I, I have this underlined right here. I don't know if you can see it. It's underlined right there. And then I have, God makes the harvest ready now. And it's in big, bold letters with an exclamation point. I must have written that when I was a teenager. Um, but the first step in recognizing how off-kilter I had made this scripture, it begins by placing it in its proper context. You see, I'd taken this verse and I had plucked it from its place for my own purposes. Um, but without context, how are we to tell what Jesus is saying or, or how he is working in the lives of the people around him? The truth is, when Jesus said these things, he wasn't speaking directly to me. He was talking to the disciples who were in a state of confusion about what was happening. Uh, right before this verse comes a very well-known part of the Bible uh, where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. Surprisingly to her, Jesus speaks, Jesus the Jew speaks to the Samaritan woman. <gasps> How scandalous. Uh, he asks her to draw him some water. <gasps> How audacious. And then he proceeds to change this woman's life forever by, by showcasing that he knows who she is, teaching her that he is the living water and revealing himself to be the Messiah. How incredible. And the disciples return and they look around and they're like, what? What happened? I mean, they don't even talk to her. They don't engage. They must think that Jesus at this point is delirious from something. So we're going to back it up and look at this. This is 427. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, this is great. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. He must be so hungry that he didn't notice she was a Samaritan. Get that man a sandwich. And then Jesus rebukes them. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And here's another great one. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Like, did somebody just walk up and hand this guy some bread? They just do not get it. They don't understand. And honestly, I can relate to where the disciples are at this point, right? I can be in their shoes and just not get it and not understand what Jesus is saying, but, but think very literally of what he's saying and just be like, did, did somebody bring him food? But it continues. This is verse 34. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And now we're at the verse that I took out of place so many years ago. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Now, as we read these next couple of verses, we're going to continue right along. But as we read these next couple of verses, I want you to read them uh, with the original idea that I had in my mind that, that Jesus is just there trying to claim souls for heaven. So keep that in mind as we read these next verses. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life 
so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. If you're reading this scripture with the claiming souls uh, lens in mind, it can be a bit confusing, especially at the very end there in verse 38 when, when Jesus says, I sent you to reap, right? So he's talking to the disciples. He, he sends the disciples to reap. I, I don't really remember Jesus telling the disciples, hey, go claim me a whole bunch of souls. And so if that's the lens and I'm thinking about it that way, well, did, is Jesus telling the disciples to claim souls? Are they, I thought that was Jesus's job. And, and then the spiral off of that, the tailspin goes all the way down to yourself. Well, if, if the disciples are supposed to do that and I'm a disciple of Jesus, am I the one that's supposed to be claiming and reaping these souls for heaven? So you can see that if you're seeing this verse through that lens, it's easy to stumble and make it self-serving. Now, I want to place a disclaimer here and say that I'm not discounting or diminishing the role of Jesus being Savior and reclaiming lost sheep. I just earnestly think that this passage in particular goes deeper uh, on something else here. So in order to dig a little deeper on this, we're going to have to read it again, uh, but we're going to identify some things uh, based around the loving lens of Jesus Christ on the cross. Um, so first, I want to talk about the thing that is being harvested. Um, Jesus, before this, he starts talking about food and he doesn't stop. I mean, he's talking so much, it's no wonder the disciples think he's hungry because he's talking about food and now I'm hungry too. Um, but it could be a little insight onto what's being discussed specifically. He says his food is to do the will of the one who sent him. My, will is to do, er, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. In other words, restoring the relationship of God and the world and open-heartedly loving people sustains Jesus. Let's boil that down to one phrase and say relationships, right? So the food that's growing within the harvest is a personal relationship with Jesus, Okay, so we've got, that, we've got that settled. The harvest, the food that's growing is a personal relationship with Jesus. Now let's talk about the difference between the verbs reap and sow. And after praying on this and pouring over it, I, I believe God has led me to understand this. To sow is to seek righteousness and justice. That's to say, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's, that's our righteousness. And to love your neighbor as yourself. That's our justice, right? And to reap to reap is a momentary jolt when you see a person understand the food that is a personal relationship with Jesus. It's not to force them to see it. It's that you get to see their joy. You are an observer, not an active participant. And a great example of this, a great example of this might be seeing someone get baptized as they publicly proclaim their love of Christ. That's what I'm seeing as reap. And finally, the fields, the fields that are ripe for the harvest. 
Jesus is showcasing to his disciples a radically transformative notion that Samaritans are just as validated in their relationship with him as the Jews are. They are the fields that are ripe for the harvest. In other words, this whole thing could look a lot like this. Hey, disciples, do you see these Samaritans that you just so casually passed over? There's a hunger in them to be in a relationship with me. This woman who you didn't even speak to saw it. And now you're going to see so many come into a relationship with me. Even though you didn't walk through the hard times and love them with compassion and dignity because they're human beings and image bearers of God. That's what this section could come down to. Let's read it again with these things in mind. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. Look at the Samaritans. This field is ripe for the harvest. Even now the reaper is drawing his wages, right? Even now people are coming in to see their personal relationship with me. Even now that crop is harvested for eternal life so that the sower the one who loves and the reaper, the one who gets to experience this may be glad together. Thus the saying one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap, to experience this, what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. You will see, you'll reap, even though you didn't love, even though you didn't sow. Through loving relationships, people see Jesus for who he is as the Messiah. But the disciples refuse to even notice the woman. The secret Jesus, uh, this section, Jesus isn't talking about reaping souls for heaven. He's speaking about loving people. So, so call me crazy if you want to, but with this in mind, it sort of seems like this whole statement, this whole thing is Jesus rebuking the disciples for not being the ones to sow to the Samaritans in the first place. Almost like, yeah, you'll get to see them come into a relationship with me, but it could have been even better. You could have been there the whole time sowing and showcasing love. And in the end, the disciples do experience the reaping. And many Samaritans come to know Jesus because of his relationship with that woman. It finishes out here. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And I'm sure the disciples were still a little bit gobsmacked. With this context, we can see that the disciples are meant to love the Samaritans with the same heart as Jesus, with an inclusive attitude that was in unheard of at that time. Without this context of the disciples and the Samaritans, I'm trying to make kids accept Jesus all on my own without the help of the Holy Spirit. That's the difference. So this brings me to, uh, this brings us into my failure to understand what Jesus could be saying to me, specifically with that earlier explanation uh, of my friend C and I up at camp. I don't think Jesus was saying, uh, Ben, go get that kid to say some words and get into heaven. No, he was telling me to sow love and to love well. So this whole section has a lot of farming references. Um, so I thought I would mention a few things. First of all, I'm a pretty average gardener. 
uh, I am not a farmer in any way, shape, or form. I've never worked a threshing floor, nor do I know what a harvest looked like then or now. Uh, but I'll tell you what I did for you. I looked up some facts on the intranet. So get ready. These are intranet facts for you. Radishes are the quickest growing crop, usually taking about three to four weeks. To me, that's too long for something as nasty as a radish. On the other hand, cherry trees take somewhere between three to seven years before they bear fruit. I'll wait for a cherry. Now this is a cool one. Scientists, scientists just this past year just germinated date palm seeds for those delectable dates that were, uh, the seeds were somewhere around 2,000 years old. The fruit from that tree was a long time in waiting. So let me ask you a question. How long do you think a relationship takes to sell? How long do you think you need to love someone without any quid pro quo before they see Jesus' love in you? The truth is you and I have no idea. We don't have a clue. So the answer is we just keep sowing the love until the Holy Spirit is ready to bear the fruit. If our only goal is to reap souls, then we are missing out on the critical thing that Jesus himself told us to do, which is love one another. And there's a danger that comes when we expect to be the reaper and forget to be the sower. And it's bitterness. I had him right there, God. Ah, the timing was right. Why didn't you listen to me? And then anger sets in because God didn't do what I thought he should do. I guess in, in this whole situation with C, the question I should have asked myself is, Ben, are you expecting that the Holy Spirit will work through you? Or are you claiming better knowledge than God and expecting him to do your bidding? If I'm being honest, the answer was the second one. If all this is based around sowing relationships by loving one another and through that love, people will see the love of Jesus, then my focus, my focus has to change from doing it now to loving long-term. The first word that Paul uses to describe love is patient. Am I? Am I patient in love for my fellow human? Or do I give up after a certain amount of time if the results don't yield fruit? Uh, this, this verse isn't going to be up there for you, but um, this one comes out of Luke, Luke 13, uh, 6 through 9. And I just want to, I, I want you to listen to this and I want you to see Jesus's patience in love. Now, at this time, Jesus is telling a parable where Israel is, is represented as a fig tree that God has grown, uh, but is bearing no fruit. Jesus says this, then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any, Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Jesus is the servant 
and he intercedes on behalf of those who don't understand. Jesus is willing to put in that difficult work and we are to emulate that heart. Let me tell you a hard truth. You may be destined for a lifetime of sowing and that person never recognized the love of Jesus in you. But that doesn't mark failing, nor does it mark failure. You are doing exactly what God and Jesus told you to do. Now, sometimes you will reap the reward of watching a person understand the love of Jesus, but it's never just your love that did it. John 4.38, others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Okay, so we've gotten through two of those failures. Now let's uh, tackle that final one. Yeah, I did use this scripture at one point for my own personal spiritual victory. And just a little bit of a note here. Anytime we put selfishness and personal gain ahead of Jesus, let me be clear, we aren't serving the Lord in that. So how can we use this knowledge for Christ's victory instead of ours? I believe it's a threefold answer that includes inclusion, patience, and perseverance. Jesus has a surprising message that baffles the disciples. It's a message about seeing others outside of their normal social bubble and loving them. Therefore, I believe we need to follow suit and love not just those who are within our friend bubbles, but those outside as well. That means growing relationships with people outside of church, meeting new people, hopefully a lot who don't know who Jesus is and loving them without any expectation of when they will see Jesus' love through you. It also means things like growing relationships within our church. Just, just now, just before, we had this lovely moment where we all got to gather and greet each other, and we all said hi, and I honestly love those moments. I do. But we have to seek and find those new people whom we do not know, and shower them with love. And, and not only that, but it's not just a hello. It's important to actually find out something about them. What's the best thing that's happened in your week? What's something new that you've learned? What's, how can I pray for you? What's your name? This moment doesn't stop in the minuscule greeting time, but also before and after church as well. I, I love seeing familiar faces that come up to me and greet me every week that make me feel like my church family continually checks in on me and loves me. But just as exciting for me is the opportunity to meet someone new and find out about them. I'm calling this idea sowing within our church. We got to sow within our church. And anyone who's been here and considers this home, this is a challenge to all of us. Are we a church who sows love with those who walk in our doors or join an event? It's as simple as that. So if that idea helps us with our inclusion, hopefully this next one helps with patience. This idea comes from the Dallas Willard through the uh, John Ortberg and onto the John Mark Comer train of thinking. And that is a process called slowing. Uh, At its basic level, slowing is the practice of training to be more patient by putting yourself in situations where you're forced to slow down. Examples, driving the speed limit, not passing a car who's going slower than you, picking the longest line at the grocery store and waiting in it. 
Jamie and I have been implementing these for the past year. And I have to tell you, it's terrible. I really hate it. I really, I like really, 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 really hate it. But I have noticed that when it comes to listening to other people or, or dealing with a hard circumstance, I'm much more patient. After all, if I can deal with a slow driver, I can certainly spend some extra time with a friend in need. If you're interested more in this idea of slowing, um, I, I really recommend Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. It expands and expounds much better than I ever could about why this process is spiritually healthy. And finally, on my last one, it, it means not giving up. And it means loving with a heart of perseverance. Don't give up on the people you're trying to love. Keep sowing that seed. Nurture it. Care for it. Don't overwater it, but sow a seed of love. And there's always an opportunity to pick right back up where you left off, no matter how long it's been. Pray about how to get back into that relationship. Reach out, accept your own faults, and forgive theirs. You can always grow relationships through love. The harvest will show itself as ready when the Holy Spirit moves. So let's all, let's all be a sower of love for your lifetime. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.